Our sermon text this morning can be found in the book of Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. If you wish to follow along and you grabbed one of the Bibles as you came into the building, it can be found on page 983. And it should also be displayed on the screen behind me. Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to start reading at verse 9. Colossians 1, starting at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, before we get into Colossians this morning, I have an exciting announcement, or an, an announcement that I'm excited about. Um, as you know, as many of you know, for the last several years, we have been praying and desiring to add leaders and elders to our team, our, our pastoral team here at Heritage, so that we can care for you more effectively. Some of you have been around here long enough to know that the last time we added elders to our, to our church was seven and a half years ago, which was me. <laughs> That was a long time ago, and um, since then, for various reasons, we have uh, we've 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 had some elders uh, leave for various reasons, and we've never been able, or never to this point, really replenish the pool. And three elders in a church of our size is is not really an effective way to care for you at the level that we want to care for you. And the New Testament, as we know, in the New Testament, that the church was led by teams of elders. And those elders, some of them were supported, but a, a great majority of them, or many of them, were not supported financially by the church, but nevertheless, they were gifted with the work of pastoring and shepherding, and they were, they were doing such things. And so, as we've been praying and watching, we've been looking for men in our church who are already doing the work of a pastor without the title. They're already shepherding, they're already eldering, they're already caring for you. And we also took suggestions from you. I think it was over a month ago we, we sought to get some input from our church to see if you were seeing what we were seeing and if you were recognizing some of those men. And we were thrilled as elders to see that you had recommended the men that we were thinking about, and they were very high on your list as well. And so the two men, there's two at this time, that we are nominating officially, um, Not right, we're not voting, okay? This is going to be a season of prayer and you guys getting to interact with them. Okay, but the elders are officially nominating two men that we're super excited uh, about. And these are qualified men. They are men who have served as elders before. And so they know what it's like to bear the burden of shepherding and pastoring. And they also help just bring some maturity to our team by virtue of their experience and their godliness. And so the two men that we are nominating, I'm not going to tell you about this week. I'm just kidding. How could I... How could I build that up and then just deflate the balloon like that? No, the two men are Keith Withrow and Thad Gunderson. And these are the men that we are putting forward for you to consider over the next several, uh, next month or two. Please get to know them. Encourage, I encourage you to spend time with them, talk to them. Um, uh, and, and, and if you have any concerns about either one of them, please come share them with us over the course of these next couple of months as we enter in to this season. And in a couple of weeks, um, on August 27th, I get dates wrong, you all know that. So two weeks from this Sunday, we'll, we'll hopefully hear from them, and they'll share briefly about their heart and uh, where they sense God's leading in their own lives in this way. And so we're thrilled. Please pray with us. This is a sermon on prayer this morning. This is a season of prayer for us as a church, and we need God to lead us as a people. And so please uh, commit yourself to praying, especially over these next couple of months, that God would make his will known and clear 
Um, just because we nominate these guys and they'd be the first to say it doesn't mean that, that they should be elders. We sense a, a leadership from the Lord, but ultimately we, we, that the authority for that decision rests with you as the church. And so we want you to invest in these men, get to spend time with these men, talk to these men, and get to know them. And, and if you have any, any concerns about it at all, please come to talk to Pastor Keith, Pastor Ted, and myself. Let's pray one more time before we dive in to Colossians chapter 1. Father, thank you for the opportunity to spend time in your word. We're, we counted a great treasure to us that you would disclose yourself to us and that you would give us any revelation at all of who you are and what you desire from us as your people. That's a great gift of mercy in and of itself. But that gift in and of itself is not savingly beneficial to any of us. You had to send the Holy Spirit into our lives to raise us from spiritual death and call us into newness of life that we might be able to rightly understand the things that you have given to us, that we might be able to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that we might be able to understand the truth of your word. And so we confess that our need, just as it was in the very beginning for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, is the same Holy Spirit that we need this morning to continue to open our eyes and to lead us. So we pray that you would open our eyes this morning, Spirit, and Help us to behold many wonderful things that you have given to us in this passage of Scripture before us that you yourself inspired through the Apostle Paul. So we pray this for the glory of God in Jesus' name and our good. Amen. All right, Colossians chapter 1. We're making our way kind of chapter by, well, paragraph by paragraph through Paul's letter to the Colossians. If you're new with us and you're just a guest this morning, this is our second week in Colossians chapter, in the, in the book of Colossians, and we're picking up at verse 9. It's typically our pattern here at Heritage just to march through books of the Bible, letting God's word set the agenda for our diet every Sunday and giving him um, uh, his, his rightful place in that. So nothing, as you know, is more basic to the Christian life than prayer. Nothing also is more difficult in the Christian life than prayer. That's strange. Over and over again in Scripture, we read exhortations to be ready to pray, to watch and pray, to, to pray without ceasing. The greatest saints in Scripture, from Moses to Hannah in the Old Testament, to Peter and Paul and Mary, a different group, in the New Testament, were men and women of prayer. The young church in Acts, remember in Acts chapter 2, was characterized by its devotion to prayer. Pastors are called to give themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. We've all heard the saying that the family or the couple or the church that prays together stays together. And yet most churches have a handful of people in a prayer meeting and it's usually the least attended meeting of any church. Prayer is simple and profound, but it's also difficult. It's at one level very easy and at another level very difficult. I mean, think about it. Prayer is talking to God. What a privilege that we have, and yet it's often the most neglected thing that we do in our lives. On the one hand, prayer is as simple as, God, help me, or God, be merciful to me, or Lord, save me. And on the other hand, prayer is the greatest, most exalted form of communication any human being could ever attempt. After all, we are talking to God, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, the Lord of ages, the eternal king, and our heavenly father. Most of us know that we should pray. In fact, all Christians do pray, though most of us pray far less than we should or could or want to because we often find prayer difficult. We find the cultivation of a strong, vibrant Life of prayer elusive to us. Maybe you've grown disenchanted with the whole thing and you're cynical about prayer. But most of us, while we know that we should pray and that all Christians do pray, I don't presume to have all the answers to our difficulties in prayer. And the purpose in this sermon this morning is not to unpack all those difficulties, but I know that this text that we're looking at this morning can help. Because it helps us by showing us what to pray for. And that, just knowing what to pray for, can be a profound motivation in and of itself to pray. 
just knowing what to pray for. D.A. Carson says the following, Learn to pray with pause. Such study will help us identify what to pray for and how to approach God. To restrict ourselves to the petitions of Paul's prayers, we must ask ourselves how far the petitions we commonly present to God are in line with what Paul prays for. Suppose, for example, that 80 or 90% of our petitions ask God for good health, recovery from illness, safety on the road, a good job, success in exams, the emotional needs of our children, success in our mortgage application, and much more of the same. How much of Paul's praying revolves around equivalent terms? If the center of our prayer is far removed from the center of Paul's praying, then even our very praying may serve as a wretched testimony to the remarkable success of the process of paganization in our own life and thought. Now, that's not to say that we're not to carry those concerns to God. I pray often for safety and for health concerns. Those are not bad things to pray for. We see those very prayers happening in the scriptures. So don't let, me, don't let this sermon discourage you from casting all your cares on God, all your burdens on him, all your anxieties. If those things are giving you burden and care and anxiety, the Lord wants you to cast them. But those things ought not to occupy primary place and central place in our prayer lives. Rather, our prayer lives should be centered around the things that matter and are nearest to the heart of God himself and what he desires most for us. Here's what John Piper says. He does, I do not tire of saying to our church, the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that they try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. He goes on to explain, until you believe that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. But we have million, what have millions of Christians done? They have stopped believing that we are in a war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning, just easy peacetime and prosperity. And what do they do with the walkie-talkie? They tried to rig it up as an intercom in their cushy houses and cabins and boats and cars, not to call in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask the maid to bring another pillow to the den, end quote. So you see, when we treat, if we don't, if we don't have a right approach to prayer and the things that are central to the heart of God aren't central to our own hearts, prayer will malfunction. It will malfunction in our hands. So just understanding what to pray for is an immense encouragement to pray in and of itself. And whereas last week we looked at the power of the gospel to transform us, so this week we look at the prayer that highlights the need to act in a way that's consistent with what the gospel has imparted to us. So as soon as Paul reflects on with great thankfulness what God has done by the power of his gospel in these people, he immediately turns to prayer that the Lord would continue that work, increase that work, deepen that work that the gospel has begun. And those are the sorts of things we want to be praying about. We must not think that just because the gospel has done its transforming power, we have no need to pray. We have great need to pray, as Paul models for us here. So last week we saw that prayer includes both thanksgiving, thankfulness, as well as intercession, asking God for things, for people. And in our verses this week, we see both of those. The first half, verses 9 through 11, is intercession, and the second half is thanksgiving. So let me give three introductory observations before we dive in uh, to these four prayers that Paul prays in verses 9 through 14. First observation, why does Paul intercede for them? Why does he pray? Notice verse 9. And so, and so, that so is an important word because it's carrying us back to verse 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And it's saying that this is the reason that he's praying. What reason? All the good fruit of the gospel that's coming out of these Christians' lives. That moves him to pray. He receives a report from Epaphras, his co-worker, verse 7, verse 8, about how well this church is doing. And he immediately turns to prayer for them. Now, how different is this 
from how some of us, perhaps all of us, respond from time to time when we hear of God blessing other people. So often we can be tempted to envy, being jealous. Ooh, why is God blessing them? Why is he not blessing me? I know they don't deserve that. I do. But not Paul. Not Paul. Although he is sitting in prison, he is thrilled at what God is doing in a church in Colossae. Thrilled. We don't read anything from Paul that says, God, what about me? If it weren't for me, they probably wouldn't even be Christians. I I led Epaphras to Christ. How come you bless them so abundantly and leave me in this stinking jail? None of that. Not a whiff of that. No self-pity. All humility and joy because his heart is not wrapped up in his personal condition. His heart is wrapped up in the progress of the gospel in people's lives. So for whom does he intercede? Who's he praying for? Well, the Colossians. Has he ever met these people? No. He's never been there. At least didn't plant a church there. That's why he says in verse 9, from the day that we heard about you from Epaphras. Not the day we met you, but the day we heard about you. So his heart is gripped, and he's going to enter into a big prayer for people he doesn't even know while he's sitting in jail. And then notice how often he prays for them. Constantly. He says, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Now, that doesn't mean all he's doing in jail is praying. It just means that they are being brought frequently to his mind, and he is interceding for them as he's, as he's brought to their mind. No doubt, Epaphras comes back, visits Paul, gives him the report. He immediately, in addition, his first response is thankfulness to God, and then his second response is, Epaphras, come in here, or stand next to the jail, allowing visitors, assuming, come in, let's sit down, let's pray for these people. Let's pray for the Colossians. And so the, the question then becomes is, for what should we be constantly praying? And this morning, I want us to look at four constant prayers that should be on our lips and in our hearts as God's people. Because these are the prayers that are on God's heart. And these are his desires for us. Prayer is the means by which we pray into reality what the gospel is doing in our lives. And this is a great prayer for that. So four prayers. Let's go to prayer number one. Verse nine. The prayer is, fill me, God. Fill me, God. Let's read it. Picking up in the middle of verse nine. Asking, here's what he's asking. First prayer. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There's the first prayer. Fill me, God, with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, just to be clear here, the knowledge of his will, this phrase, the knowledge of his will, is not used here the way it's typically, the way we typically use it. When we use the knowledge of his will, we're praying about, God, give me insight into what decision you want me to make. Let me know the knowledge of your will regarding this decision or this opportunity or this thing that's in front of me or this desire that I have. Make known your will to me. That's not what Paul's praying. That's not a bad prayer. Nothing wrong with that prayer. But that's not what Paul's praying here. What Paul's praying here is a knowledge of God's will that is already revealed. Namely, the knowledge of his will that's revealed in this book. His redemptive plan for the world. And he's praying for these new believers that they will go deep in their understanding of what God's up to in the world and what his plan is, specifically what he has done in and through Jesus Christ and how that is to work itself out in these Christians' lives. The reason why I say that that's his point, I need to give you a textual reason for that. Don't just believe that because I said it. Here's the reason. Look at verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, we're going to get to that in a second, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. See that? 
See how knowledge is used in verse 10 and knowledge is used in verse 9. Knowledge in verse 9, knowledge of God's will. Verse 10, knowledge of God. So what Paul is praying for is that these Colossian Christians, that they would not acquire some mystical insight into God's hidden purposes or the intricacies of his providential plan for the world. That's not what he's asking for. What he's asking for is that they would be deeply rooted in God's saving will already revealed in Jesus. That they would get to know Jesus and what he's up to and how God is going about saving people in and through Christ. Now we see this all throughout Colossians, that this is one of Paul's main burdens for this church. I just want to read a couple of verses. Chapter 1, verse 19. For in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He wants them to know that. Chapter 2, verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He wants them to know Christ. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. For in Him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. There's that word filling again. Chapter 2, verse 19. And not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished, sounds like filling, and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. So the purpose of Paul's prayer is that they would be filled with the knowledge of God and what he is doing in saving people through the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 11, verse 2, says the following, talking about the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and knowledge, of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And here's the good news, church. The same spirit that anointed Jesus and empowered him with wisdom and understanding is the same spirit that we have living within us and who has anointed us for the same end. We can have insight into what God is doing in and through the Lord Jesus Christ by reading this book prayerfully. And the Lord makes known to us his will. It's not a will that can't be understood. The scriptures are plain. Some parts of scripture are more difficult than others. But the overarching story of God's plan to redeem a a, a multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation through a Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, and bring them to heaven to be with him forever. I mean, that can be grasped. And what what Paul is praying for these Colossians is that they would press into that, that they would know that, that they would understand that, and that the Spirit would give them more insight into that, and that it would thrill their hearts and grip them. Don Carson again says, is there anything our generation more desperately needs than this? To be filled with the knowledge of what God is doing in and through the Lord Jesus Christ? There's nothing that we need more than this. He goes on to say, some of us have chased every fad, scrambled aboard every bandwagon, adopted every gimmick, pursued every encounter with the media. Others of us have rigidly cherished every tradition, determined to change as little as possible, worshiped what is aged simply because it's aged. But where are the men and women whose knowledge of God is as fresh as it is profound? Whose delight in thinking God's thoughts after him ensures that their study of the scriptures is never merely intellectual and self-distancing. Whose desire to please God easily outstrips residual and corrupting desires to shine in public. So our prayers then should move us to ask God for all the fullness that he has made available to us in Christ. Notice the scope of his praying. Verse 9, he wants all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Notice verse 10, he wants us to please him in every way. Verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work, being strengthened with all power, verse 11, for all endurance. He wants it all. He wants everything that God wants to do in and through this church to be given to them. And so he's praying big prayers. Big, big prayers. Fill them, God. Fill these Colossian Christians with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's his first big prayer. Prayer number two. Be pleased, God. Be pleased, God. Notice verse 10. 
so as. So here's why he's praying for them to be filled. He wants them to, to live a certain way. He wants them to have an intellectual, spiritual understanding of what God has done so that they'll live a certain way. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So he wants a worthy walk. He wants a worthy walk from them. You know, God calls us to walk worthy. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, we're called to walk worthy of our calling. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5, we're called to walk worthy of the kingdom. Philippians 1, 27, we're called to walk worthy of the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2, 12, we're called to walk worthy of God himself. This is a big concern for Paul, for all the churches that he writes to. He wants them to be obedient. He wants them walking worthy of this high calling that they've received. He wants, he wants a dignified life, a godly life, a holy life, a fruit-bearing life, an increasing in knowledge life, a pleasing God life from people that have had the gospel transform them. This is, he wants a life that's consistent with their new identity as saints, as those who have been delivered from darkness. Why, though? Why does he pray that they would be filled why has he prayed for a worthy walk? Because he wants God to be fully pleased with him. Notice that, verse 10, fully pleasing to him. He wants us to have an eye to God's approval. Now, you might be asking the question, doesn't the gospel give us God's approval? I mean, isn't that what the gospel's about? The gospel is about God saying, I approve of you, I love you, I'm pleased with you in Jesus, then how can Paul pray that we'd be fully pleasing to God if we're already fully pleasing to him? See, this is one of the problems that we hear in our day in conflating two different theological categories. They just, a lot of teachers will just com combine these two theological categories and gut. Um, and, and so when you read things like this, like you can't make any sense of it because it's like, well, I thought we were already pleasing to God. Why is he praying for us to be fully pleasing to God? Are we not fully pleasing? Does he not like us? I mean, is he still mad at us to some degree? It's very important for us to understand this. Now, just to be clear, this verse, verse 10, has nothing to do with our justification before God. Our justification before God means that the moment we turn from sin, place our trust exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ, God credits to us the righteous life of Jesus Christ, and Jesus bears our sin. So as a judge, God acquits us and counts us innocent before his judgment. Not just innocent, but fully righteous. This verse is not concerning our legal status. It's concerning our ethical behavior. And there is a huge difference between the union that you enjoy with Jesus and the communion that you enjoy with Jesus. It's an important reminder. We're not justified by works, but the result of our justification will be a life that is more and more increasingly pleasing to God. F.F. Bruce says, to make being under grace an excuse for sinning is a sign that you're not really under grace at all. People will say, I'm under grace. I'm under grace, which they mean God is pleased with me no matter what I do. That's not true. That's a, that is a blasphemous statement. No earthly father in the world would, be, would have a reputation that was worthy to uphold if he did stuff like, if his, if his kid's disobedience didn't grieve his heart and move him toward discipline. I mean, we look at that earthly father, we're like, what's wrong with that dad? But here's the good news, brothers and sisters. God can be pleased with your life. <laughs> He's not hard to please. We must not walk around like justified worms as though we're merely tolerated by God for Jesus' sake. No, we can live lives that make God happy, that evoke his pleasure, that incite joy in his heart, sinners though we be. So the point here is that Paul is praying that we would be more and more well-pleasing to him as a father. He loves us as his kids. I remember one, one pastor was asked one time, can God love us any more than he already loves us? And his thoughtful response was, well, it depends on how you define love. But basically, no, he loves us as a father loves a son. But he can always be more well-pleased with us. He can always be more well-pleased with us. 
And the good news is that as a father, you who are earthly fathers and mothers know this. You love your kids. There's nothing you wouldn't do for your kids. You would lay your life down for your kids, even when they're at their most rebellious. But you're not necessarily pleased with them in those moments. And that's the way God is with us. He's a good father to us. He loves us. He cares for us. It's not like his frown goes up and down and he's temperamental and he's, you know, that's not our father. But nevertheless, it is a blasphemous thing to say that God can be just fully pleased with us in and of Jesus Christ apart from any way that we live. So the question then becomes is what does it look like to be fully pleasing to our God? Well, Paul explains it. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, listen to this, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what it means to please God. It means that you are devoted to him and loving him and loving others. Isn't that what Jesus says was the greatest commandment in the law? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. That's right in this verse. The horizontal is bearing fruit in every good work. He wants us to lay our lives down, love people, serve them, bless them, care for them, husband, wife, child, family, neighbor, co-worker, whoever's around us, love them, serve them, care for them, brothers and sisters in the church, but also to increase in the knowledge of God, to love God, to worship God, to get to know God. So it's all about loving God and loving others. And as we grow in loving God and as we grow in loving others, the Lord is more and more well-pleased with us and we move toward being fully pleasing to him, which would be our great desire. So we must not pit these things against each other. We must not pit justification against sanctification as though God is that we are we're 100 percent accepted we are approved in christ we are righteous in christ we are forgiven in christ but we're also growing in christ and developing in christ and maturing in christ and god cares about that god's invested in that so we must not pit those things against each other but we also must not pit the knowledge of god with love for others you hear people say sometimes well that theology stuff you know all that stuff, that's really, I just care about loving people. Listen, and God does wire us with different temperaments, and some of us have a more, I would say, an other orientation where we're, we have a mercy gift, we have a heart, a compassion, we love people, and we just don't have a lot of time for, like, dense theological discussion because it makes our brains hurt. That's, it's fine to be, God made you with that gift, but we must not be dismissive. And think that God doesn't care about you growing theologically either. The same way for you eggheads like me, who like to read good books and chew on theology and, you know, divide. You must not think that, well, God just wants me to know more stuff. Just if I know more stuff, if I read more stuff, if I listen to more sermons, if I, you know, dive into more podcasts, if I get more information, if I grow in my understanding that that's what God really cares about. No, don't pit those things against each other. God wants you loving him with all your mind. God wants you loving your neighbor with all your strength. Both of them, not either one. It's not just about knowledge. It's not just about love. It's about, pur- it's about both. The purpose of our knowledge of God is to serve our passion to do good to others. I'll say that one more time. The purpose of our knowledge of God is is to serve our passion to do good to others. And this is how we know whether the gospel is bearing fruit and transforming us or not. This is a sign of the way the gospel begins to work in a person's life. They begin to care about growing in their knowledge of God, and they also care about loving other people. There's an other orientation about being fully pleasing to God. So the more, the more we are oriented outward the more we are pleasing the Lord. You know why? Because God is oriented outward. God's not self-centered. He created the world as an expression of his outward desire to take his glory public. He's outward oriented. The Spirit pushes us out. The Spirit drove Jesus. Jesus laid his life down, surrendered his will to the Father, and went into the world. The Father sent the Son. It's all about being outward and other-oriented. 
And so we're other-oriented vertically toward God. We're other-oriented toward each other horizontally. And by virtue of that, we become more fully pleasing to him. Don't you need to be that way? You wake up morning feeling that way? No, I don't. Me. Me. Everyone. Circle. Serve me. Love me. Care about me. That's why we need to pray things like this. We need to pray. (laughs) Because we're not necessarily oriented maybe you are just way more holy than i am and you don't struggle like this but there's this paul says fill me god i don't know i I read the scriptures i don't understand help me that's why we pray that fill me help me understand and god i want to be pleasing to you but i feel so inadequate i feel so weak i feel so needy i don't love you like i ought to love you i don't love others i'm too focused on me help me be pleased god You want to be pleased with my life, don't you, God? Then help me. I need you. Sam Storm says, Our great triune God and the marvelous and undeserved kindness that is ours in the gospel are of such infinite value, so exalted and beautiful and full of glory that we should always live in such a way that it be known. Our lives by his grace should reflect positively on God. People should walk away from having observed us saying, My goodness, what an incredible God he or she believes in. Our aim isn't to evoke from them praise and admiration for who we are, but praise and admiration for who he is. And so we pray, be pleased, God, because for such a worthy walk, we are entirely dependent on him. As Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21 says, and I use it as a benediction often here, may he work in us what is pleasing in his sight. That's what we got to pray. So prayer number three then. See, now I feel like, This is the point of the sermon, at least in my own study of it, where I'm weak. I'm feeling my need. I need to be filled. I need to be pleasing to God. I need strength. And that's why Paul prays verse 11. Strengthen me, God. Strengthen me. And here's here's what he says. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. This is a stunning prayer. Now, the reason why I say it's stunning, I want you to turn back with me. If, you're, if you've got an open Bible and you're in Colossians, turn back with me to the book of Ephesians. Two letters back, about four or five pages in your Bible. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. And Paul prays a very similar thing for the Ephesian church as he prays for the Colossian church. I want you to look at verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20. And what is, he's praying for uh, the Ephesians to have an understanding of God's wisdom and revelation in Christ, which is in verse 17, which is the same thing he prays for the Colossians in verse 9. But look at verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of, of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. So you see power and might, right? Those are two words that are used in our text in Colossians 1.11. Power and might. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now turn back to Colossians 1. And here's why I say that is an unbelievable prayer. Because when we pray for God to strengthen us, Guess what power he's using? He's using the same power that he used to raise Jesus out of the grave. We have resurrection power available to us, which is a staggering reality. We have resurrection power. You ask the question, how are we going to get a life that's worthy of the gospel? How are we going to learn to live up to the 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 calling that we've received because God strengthens us as we pray and ask him for it so that we might endure and persevere and not throw in the towel and quit on Jesus. But we do that not by pulling up our bootstraps or tightening our bootstraps or sturdying our spine or stiffening our upper lip and just pressing on. No, we do it by calling out to our Father to strengthen 
our weak souls, our weak hearts with the resurrection power of Jesus. And he gives it to us. And it's this power that causes us to endure, to press on, to persevere. Do you know, and this is, this is, this is the marvelous thing, you have someone praying for you when you're not praying. Do you believe that? Your Savior is praying for you when you're not praying. And you know the kinds of things he's praying for you? These kinds of things. He's praying that you would be strengthened with all power for endurance and patience according to God's glorious might. And do you know that prayer's been answered probably 10,000 times in your life up to this point? Because Jesus has prayed it for you? And you're sitting here this morning as a believer, for some of you after decades, because God has answered this prayer in your life? Through Jesus? How much does God love you? How much does God want to keep you for heaven? How much does God want to make sure that you're there? So even when you're at your weakest and you say, I haven't even been praying this. I haven't been feeling. I've been walking around thinking I've got, got life licked. I've got it covered. I can do it my own. Jesus has been praying that you would be strengthened. And that should humble you and melt you. And that's going to be a far more motivation for you to go to him in prayer than if he said, listen, if you don't start praying for strength, don't expect to be a Christian next year. This verse says you've got to pray for strength. No, that's not what you're supposed to take away from this. You're supposed to take away from this that you have someone who is praying for you, but also that you are called to pray. And that when you pray, all power is disposed to you according to his glorious might. I mean, Paul is just bringing on the superlatives. He's doing the Ephesians 1 thing. He's just trying to, trying to he's saying, power, power, power. It's the power of his glory, of his might. It's everything that he has, he's disposing towards you. He doesn't have anything else. He's giving it all. And he's giving that to you to help you endure and to have patience and perseverance. Whatever God requires, brothers and sisters, God provides. And God is calling us to pray things like, fill me, God, be pleased, God, and strengthen me, God, because those are the things that he's concerned about. Lastly, prayer number four. And this is a great one to end on. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Notice verse 12. With joy giving thanks, it's probably appropriate to put verse 11 with verse 12, the end of verse 11, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Here's the reasons we should be thankful. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Very quickly, four things for which we should be continually thankful to God. Let me read. Well, here's the first one. Qualified. You're qualified. I love that word. I love that word. And I love that it's in the past tense and it's done. Don't you love the fact that the Father has qualified you for heaven? That you don't have to qualify yourself? You know, salvation is not like CrossFit. And I'm not beating up on any CrossFit folks. You guys are better than me. All right? But, but it's not about reaching a certain qualification or a certain goal or a certain attainment or a certain achievement for God to be pleased with you and accept you and receive you into his family. He has qualified you. You're qualified. You got the ribbon. You got the trophy. You got the prize. And it comes to you through the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. Saying, take this. I bought this for you. I ran the race. I fought the fight. I finished the race. Take it. It's freely offered to you. I can't think of anything that's more blessed than to wake up every morning knowing that reality. Knowing that no matter what happens to me today, I'm qualified. I'm qualified. No matter what another sinful person thinks of me today, I'm qualified. 
I'm qualified. I mean, that sort of security and strength cannot be given to you anywhere else from the gospel. Here's what Sam Storm says again. He said, whatever feelings of inadequacy or sense of shame or depths of despair may have crippled you till now, God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. In other words, for heaven. If you find yourself saying, I'm not up to the task, I'm a miserable failure, I'm a hell-deserving wretch, I don't deserve to stand in God's presence, the only thing I should inherit is death. God now says to those who are in Christ, qualified, forgiven, adequate in Jesus, righteous in my Son, come and receive and enjoy your inheritance together with all the saints in the life-giving, soul-cleansing light of my kingdom. That's our God. And that should make us incredibly thankful that he has qualified us, past tense, perfect, never to be changed, fixed in heaven. Number two, delivered. We're not just qualified, we're delivered. 13, verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. What's the domain of darkness? It's the domain of Satan. The dominion of Satan. Domain is an active power that Satan exerts over those who belong to him. And Jesus has broken into the strong man's house, bound the strong man, set us free. We've received the greatest exodus possible. We've experienced deliverance from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and soon to be from the presence of sin. Satan can hold nothing against us. He has no charge on our account that he can lay against us that Jesus has not already disposed and paid for. So therefore, he has no claims over us. He can't charge God with being unjust for forgiving us, which he could do if Jesus had not died for us. But now his weapons have been stripped from his hands. And he has no dominion over us. There are only two realms that mankind lives in, and we belong to one or the other. Jesus said in 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's where we're born. We're born into that world. We're born under the power and dominion of Satan. However, believing the gospel enables us, according to Acts 26, 18, to turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that we may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. So we are, friends, delivered. Number three, we're transferred. We're transferred. We're not only set free, we're, we're moved. Notice, middle of verse 13, he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So he didn't just set us free in jail, in hostage, hostile territory. No, he got us out of jail and took us to a city of refuge. He took us to a new place. He put us in a different kingdom. And that kingdom is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of his son, Jesus' kingdom. That's where we are spiritually right now, brothers and sisters. You are living in the kingdom of Jesus. You're living in the kingdom of Jesus. You're no longer living in the, under the dominion of Satan you're no longer unqualified for heaven. God has qualified you, he's delivered you, and he has transferred you into the kingdom of his son. He has uprooted you from one kingdom and transplanted you into another. And finally, and with this I'm going to close, verse, verse 14, he's redeemed us. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The in whom is referring back to verse 13. That's the son, that's Jesus. So through Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. See, this is what, this is the key right here. This is the unforgiveness of sin is what disqualified us. It's what kept us under Satan's dominion. It's what kept us from being transferred into the kingdom of God. But guess what? When Jesus comes and, and, and dies for our sin, his blood is a ransom payment by which he pays to God the Father, purchasing our freedom so that we can have our sins forgiven and the forgiveness of sins unlocks all these other blessings. It unlocks. Now we are qualified. 
because our sins are forgiven. There's no charge held against us. We are delivered from Satan's dominion, and we are transferred into the kingdom of Jesus. So we have forgiveness in Christ fully, finally, forever. Our redemption is achieved through his blood. Brothers and sisters, I hope that as we've meditated this morning on the content of this prayer and we've thought about what to pray for, that it's motivated you to pray. I hope that it motivates you to spend time with a God that loves you this much. Of a Jesus who never ceases praying for you. On whom on whose heart you are always. And on whose lips before the father, your concerns are ever there. And I hope it motivates you to know that your God desires to answer these things for you and for this church. We should be praying these things for each other. Let's not cave into a, to, to, to a, to a, you know, a micro approach to this where we're just thinking about ourselves and our own need. I even thought about changing the outline this morning. Fill us, God. Be pleased with us, God. It's not about us, first and foremost. So don't, yes, pray these things for yourself, but pray these things for your brothers and sisters. Pray these things for all the saints, people you don't even know. Ask that the Lord would fill his church with the knowledge of his will. Ask the Lord to cause us to be pleasing to him and to walk worthy of him and to bear fruit and to increase in his knowledge. Pray that we'd be strengthened with his power for endurance and patience and pray that we would ever increase in thankfulness because we've been qualified, delivered, transferred, and redeemed. Let's do that right now as we go to prayer. And the worship team comes. Father, we want to ask that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing to the Lord Jesus, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you, be, may, may you strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to you. Thank you for qualifying us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Thank you for delivering us from the domain of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of your beloved son. And thank you that in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. We pray all this in his name.